Romans 4, 1 to 25. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the ones who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, so that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we ask for you to help us this morning. Help us to understand your word. Uh, Help us to see the difference that it makes in our lives. Uh, Help us to hear, uh, help us to receive, uh, help us uh, to have good news um, land at the depths of our soul. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, we're looking at a passage this morning that is very dense, very compact, and honestly very demanding of us if we want to understand what it's talking about. Uh, But I believe a careful reading of this text 
is incredibly rewarding. And I'm going to do my best to hit the high points. But before I get into all of that, I want to do a little imagination exercise with you here this morning. And I'm totally stealing this from my friend, uh, Britton Wood, who many of you may remember, uh, used to be the campus minister with RUF at Stanford. And it is a game uh, that he talked about in a sermon one time, a game called Never Have I Ever. Never had I ever heard of this game until I heard Britton talk about it. And uh, I think he makes some uh, really uh, helpful points for us here. But here's the thing. We're not going to play the game uh, here this morning because Iron would disapprove of doing that in worship. But what I want you to do is I want you to listen to these statements, these never have I ever's. And I want you to think about when you would be out of the game because you've actually evered some of those never have I ever's. All right, you ready? So here goes. Never have I ever wanted to be somebody else. Never have I ever done something that I thought I'd never do. Never have I ever wished I was smarter, better looking, or wealthier. Never have I ever left a social interaction and replayed it in my mind over and over again, wondering what exactly went wrong and wishing that I could have a shot at it again. Or how about this? Never have I ever humble bragged about my busyness or my grades or my exercise routine or my diet or the people that I know. Never have I ever wished I were somewhere else where people liked me and appreciated me more or with someone else who liked me and appreciated me more. Never have I ever gotten defensive when I was criticized. Never have I ever wondered if I could ever really be the person that I think I'm supposed to be. Never have I ever thought no one will love me unless I, you fill in the blank. Now, I'm going to guess that at least one of those, and maybe more, rang your bell this morning. And what these are is they are secularized expressions or experiences of the desire to be justified. Because underneath all our longings is this longing to be accepted, to be approved, to be welcomed, to be loved. And if we don't think that that can be found in God, because either God's not there or he's not the one that can give it to us, we'll end up looking for it anywhere and everywhere else. People used to fear the judgment of God, but we kind of got rid of that, culturally speaking. And you know what's happened? Now we fear the judgment of others, which is one of the reasons why our lives are riddled with insecurity and why we feel so much pressure to virtue signal, to show people we're in the right, we're okay, we're an acceptable person. And the deal is this, is we can never quite erase that need or that desire for justification. It's baked into us. And it's the animating energy of the human experience. Now, uh, by the way, Britain has this marvelous little quip uh, for those of you who like to say, but I don't really care what people think of me. And the quip goes like this. Have you ever told anybody that? Why did you tell someone that? 
You told them that because that's what you wanted them to know about you. So they would think that you're cool or you're self-reliant or you're just above it all. Not caring has become your righteousness. And we talked about this last week that so much of our life is driven by this need, right, to be justified. And we described it as we want to present a righteousness before an audience that matters to us to get the favorable verdict. And the way that we think we get there, get that verdict, is by working for it. You work for the favorable verdict. And it sounds like this. Obey the laws of the audience you're trying to please. And you will be accepted. But what we saw last week is Paul thundered in our ears. No, no, no. This isn't how it works with God. It can't work that way. Because none of us lives up to his laws. And we spent weeks unpacking that. But Paul also said, but I've got some good news for you. God has done something for you in the gospel apart from your working for it. You can actually be justified in his sight by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And understanding this is the difference between religion that kills And the gospel that brings life. Now, some of you might say, like, aren't all religions the same? And there's a simple answer to that. No, they're not. In fact, Christianity is something entirely different. And Paul's going to keep driving this home in our hearts. Now, what we're we're looking at this morning is, um, is Paul is summoning two witnesses to the stand. And the first is Abraham. He's the, he's the main witness, and he spends most of his time on him. He's the father of the Jewish people. But the second is David, and he's a secondary witness. He was the greatest king in Israel, and he provides a little bit of corroborating testimony for the point Paul is making. And here's the point that Paul is trying to get across. The gospel that he's saying to us, it isn't new. This is actually what God has been up to and the way that he has worked all along. Now, Abraham is the main witness. That's who Paul spends most of his time on, and that's who we'll spend most of our time on. Uh, But the reason is, is Abraham's a pretty important guy. And not just in the book of Genesis, but throughout the whole Bible. And by the way, not just the whole Bible, but in human history. The three great monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all root their stories in the story of Abraham. So even if you're not, you don't call yourself religious, you don't think of yourself as a spiritual person, it might be worth listening to the story of Abraham and to understand a little bit about why people have found this story so significant. But another reason Paul uses Abraham is because he was highly revered by the rabbis of his day. And one of the things that you can see when you read the Jewish literature of the time is uh, it's kind of hagiographic. It sort of polishes him up. It makes him better than he actually was, according to the text of Scripture, that he's regarded as perfectly sinless and righteous. And Paul says, let's take a closer look. Let's look. At the story of Abraham. And this is what Paul is going to show us. 
by going back to the story of Abraham. He's going to show us how God counts. He's going to show why he does it this way. And he's going to describe a bit about what saving faith truly is. You ready? All right, so how God counts, and specifically how God counts righteousness to us. Paul begins by saying, all right, let's talk about old Abe, right? How was he justified in God's sight? And the critical question is, what do the scriptures say? What do they say about him? That's verse 3. And if you notice, for Paul, scripture is the final court of appeal. So he's going back to the story of scripture, the story of Abraham in the story of scripture, And this is what he says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a direct quote from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which Paul uses here in his uh, letter to the Romans, the word for counted is the word logizomai. And it's an important word. And we know it's important because... It shows up throughout our passage. It's in verse 3, 4, 5, and 6. It's in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. It's in verses 22, 23, and 24. And so we got to take a look at how God counts. Some translations uh, translate it as credited, which means to confer a status that was not there before. So what does it mean that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness? And this deserves some careful reflection. It's not that Abraham's faith results in righteous living. Yes, faith does do that to a certain degree. And we'll get to that later in the book of Romans. But that's not not what he's saying here. He's not saying like, Abraham, oh, you believe that's going to lead to righteous living. We'll go ahead and count it right now. You know, that's 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 not the sense here. Nor is it that faith is a substitute for righteousness. Like God's looking at Abraham and saying, you don't have righteousness, but I'm going to go ahead and count your faith. I'll take that instead. No, that's, that's not exactly what it means either. And in fact, we begin to understand what's happening here when we notice that later he describes righteousness being counted to us. And in this very next verse, Paul starts talking about the difference between wages and gifts. A wage is something you've worked for, and it comes to you as your due. You deserve it. But a gift is given to you apart from your working for it at all. A wage is a commercial metaphor. And what Paul is doing is he wants to rule out any possibility of Abraham meriting in some way this declaration of righteousness, his justification. And he's saying... It doesn't come as a payment for good deeds. It's a gift freely bestowed. It's not a reward for character or conduct. It's a gift of grace. And when you begin to like dig into this and take all of it in, what you realize is God isn't counting something we have, faith, to be our righteousness. He's counting something we don't have, righteousness, to be ours by grace through faith. And if you keep reading, it's clear. Because what does it say? Verse 5, God justifies, counts as righteous, the ungodly. Verse 6, God 
counts righteousness to us apart from works. To be justified is to have a righteousness counted to you, not as a wage that you worked for, but as a gift when you didn't deserve it at all. And what Paul is saying is it's all there in the Abraham story. And at this point, that's when he calls David as his corroborating witness. If you notice, he's quoting from Psalm 32, which we looked at a little earlier in our service uh, this morning. David had a lot going for him. He was the king, right? Uh, he, was, he was a big guy. Uh, he was the OG, right? He, 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 he had done more than anybody else, but he was also in many ways a disaster of a human being because he engaged in all kinds of self-destructive behavior and he did all sorts of harmful things, not only to himself, but to others. But when it all came crashing down on David, in God's mercy, he discovered the blessing of not having his sins count against him. Paul is putting Genesis 15, 6 about Abraham and Psalm 32 from David together to show us that the way God counts is a double counting. A not counting our sins against us and counting a righteousness to us that is not innately ours. Both a blotting out and a crediting to. And do you notice, God doesn't justify the one trying, the one doing their best, the one working. No, no, he justifies the one trusting his promises, even the ungodly. Now, why, why is this so important? Why are we laboring this? Because often you'll hear it get tossed around. Are you a Christian? And what you hear sometimes is this. I'm trying to be. Or, yeah, I really want to follow God's will in my life. Or, you know, I do my best to live by the example of Jesus. But none of those things gets to the heart of what the gospel brings into our life. The gospel comes crashing in and tells us you have no hope apart from Jesus. But you can stop working for your justification because it comes to you as a gift and it is received by faith. Do you hear that? To the one who does not work, Paul writes, you stop working. Not stop working altogether. There's work that we do. But you stop working for your justification. You don't produce it before an audience and get the verdict. It actually comes to you as a gift received by faith. And misunderstanding this has ruinous effects on your spiritual life. You will be riddled with insecurity. You will be eaten up by anxiety. Your life will be a, he loves me, he loves me not, back and forth. You'll become spiritually prideful and judgy, or you'll become so touchy to criticism and unable to face your failures because you are devastated by moral lapses and meltdowns. Justification has this double counting to it that addresses all of that. On the one hand, God not counting our sins against us. On the other hand, God crediting us with his righteousness. That we receive by faith as a gift, completely apart from our working for it. You know, Paul um, actually says it almost exactly this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. 
It says that he who had no sin, that's Jesus, became sin for us in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Which means Jesus was counted as having our sin and we are counted as having God's righteousness. And that righteousness becomes ours when we are in Christ by faith. Now, to feel some of the emotional weight of this, I want to tell you a little story uh, from a good friend of mine who is a pastor in South Carolina now, but at one time was a campus minister. And uh, uh, he had a student by the name of Shane, and Shane was in the Navy ROTC. And this strange little thing happened in Shane's life. The day he graduated from college, he was simultaneously admitted into the U.S. Navy, And honorably discharged. Which means that for the rest of Shane's life, he gets all the benefits of having served in the U.S. military without actually having served a single day of his life. And so my friend asked Shane, how do people respond when you tell them this? And he said, well, my ROTC buddies get really angry. They're like, that's no fair. We're going to have to work for all that. And you're getting it for free. And that response is understandable. The second way people respond is, this is the most amazing thing that I've heard. I've never heard of such a thing. And that response is understandable. But Shane said, you know what, what happens more often than not is most people say, oh, that's cool which shows me they have no idea what I just said to them. (laughs) If you are reacting right now, this is not fair, right? Or you're saying this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard. You're hearing it. But if you're yawning, if you're saying like, ah, that's cool. You're not getting it. Listen, this was the thing that exploded into the first century and sent the gospel throughout the Roman empire And it's still going through the world today. This good news. And it is life-changing. Paul describes it at the beginning of his letter as this is the power of God unleashed in our lives. Now, there's an objection that Paul uh, mentions almost immediately after saying all this. And it comes in verse 9, and it goes something like this. Hold on a second. Like, we're talking about Abraham here. Uh, Wasn't Abraham made right with God by circumcision? And like, please let that not be the way. But uh, no, he was not. Paul actually addresses it and gets into the story and says, he was justified before he was circumcised. Circumcision wasn't the cause of his justification. And I love the language. It was a sign that sealed to him the righteousness he had by faith. A sign identifying those who trust God's promises as God's people. And a seal authenticating their right standing with him. Paul's saying, go back. It's all there in the story of Abraham. So this is is how God counts. For those who trust his promises, he does not count your sins against you. And he does count righteousness to you as a gift. That's the counting of God. Now, why would God do it this way? And that's the second thing I want to look at this morning. And I want you to skip down for a second to verse 16 because Paul actually succinctly answers this question. 
God's purpose in justifying us by faith is in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. As Jonathan Landry Cruz points out, what Paul is saying is this, justification by faith keeps the promise gracious and it makes the gospel go global. And this is what I mean by that. Justification by faith guards the truth that salvation is by grace. That's why Paul says it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. And here you got to address the whole question that is leading up to this. But what about the law, right? The law is pretty important. It's God's law. It's played a pretty big role in the story. And this is what Paul says. If it were by law, right, that the promise is fulfilled, right, the promise is going to, it's going to peter out. It's going to accomplish nothing. It's going to be useless because nobody keeps the law perfectly. And as we've looked at again and again throughout this uh, sermon series, the law shows up our inadequacies. It exposes our transgressions. It, it actually identifies them for us. Paul will go on to say later, it even aggravates our sinful nature, agitates it into action. And Paul says it brings wrath. But the gospel is different. It's a word of grace. It's a word of promise, right? Justification by faith guards this. And it actually brings hope to the hopeless and help to the helpless. John Stott, the great, uh, the late great uh, British uh, theologian, has a helpful way of describing the point that Paul's making here. He says, pay close attention. The language of law is you shall. But the language of promise is God saying, I will. And those are two different things. God does say to us, you shall. And he says that for our good. But God also says, I will. And we are to take him at his word. We are to believe him and trust him. And here's the thing. There is no other way besides justification by faith in which you can keep this gracious. Because any other way is going to dilute and muddle the graciousness of salvation. Every other way besides the gospel, even secularized versions, are going to end up saying it is up to you to keep the law of the audience that you're trying to please. But justification by faith says it is grace from A to Z, from beginning to end. Justification by faith keeps the promise gracious. And here's the other reason that Paul highlights why God has done it this way. Justification by faith ensures the gospel will go global. Go back to verse 11. At the end of it, there's another purpose identified of why Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. And if we were to try to sum up the argument, it's basically this. So that he could be the spiritual father of all who believe. Jew and Gentile in one family, which is God's purpose all along. It's missional and it fits the promise because what is the promise that he gave to Abraham is that through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. The Jewish literature at the time saw Abraham as the great dividing point in history, but Paul makes him the great rallying point to say, look, 
If God's I will to Abraham is to come true, it will mean that no ethnic, no geographic, no cultural barriers can stand in the way. It's not about genes. It's not about ancestry. It is about grace received through faith. And because it's received by faith, it is open to the entire world. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how old you are. The gospel is for anyone and everyone. What was that promise to Abraham? You know, it's kind of encoded in his name change. Uh, if, if, if you're not familiar, Abraham's original name was Abram, which means daddy. And God changed it to Abraham, which basically means big daddy. Right? So he became big daddy. And Paul is alluding to this in verse 17, saying, I've made you the father of many nations. Again, this goes back to Genesis. And he's gesturing towards God's larger purpose, which is in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And what Paul is recognizing is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the promise of blessing is coming true, and it is true for all the world. Justification by faith unites people from every tribe, tongue, clan, and nation makes us all part of the same family. And God's promises in scripture are coming true. Abraham wasn't justified by works. He wasn't justified by circumcision. He wasn't justified by the law. He was justified by faith. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And this keeps the promise gracious and it makes the gospel go global. So now you have to ask the question, what does it mean to believe? What is saving faith? And here's a start. Saving faith is trusting God's promises and God's provision. And this is really important because there is widespread confusion in our culture about what faith is. And I want to spend a couple of minutes uh, trying to clarify this by talking about what faith is not. Okay? Faith is not a temperament. Sometimes you hear people say, I'm just not a person of faith which seems to amount to saying something like, that's not my personality type. But the Bible never treats faith as something that's going to show up on a Myers-Briggs personality test. You know, like, oh, this is a person of faith. That's a person of science. That's not how it rolls. It's not a temperament. Nor is faith positive thinking. A lot of times we toss around words like, you just got to have faith that it'll all work out. And honestly, those of you who are more cynical, you're like, pfft. (laughs) Yeah, right. Because it feels empty and vacuous. And you know why? Because it is. Unless there's reason, solid reason for that kind of confidence. And then the third thing that faith is not is it's not brainless or blind. You know, Mark Twain once said that faith is believing something you know ain't true. Or somebody said that Mark Twain said that, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, but biblically speaking, that's called nonsense. Faith is more than rational, but that doesn't mean it's less. And one of the problems that we have is we think about faith abstractly, but the Bible views it relationally. Do you or don't you trust God? And if faith is relational, then its reasonableness depends upon the reliability of the one who is trusted. Think about that. You get it intuitively. Is it reasonable to trust your two-year-old with the kitchen knife? Or how about your five-year-old driving your car? Right. 
please let everyone get this one. It's so easy, right? The answer is no, or as Paul might say, meganito, right? By no means is it reasonable to trust your two-year-old or your five-year-old in that way. But God is perfectly trustworthy. And Abraham's trust was rooted in what he knew of the character of God, namely his power and his faithfulness, which is why Paul points out at the end of verse 17 and going on that Abraham did some reflecting on who God is. He's the one who can give life to the dead. He's the God of resurrection. He's the one who can call into existence the things that are not. He's the God of creation. And so Abraham worked it out, trusting God in the face of great uncertainty. What was that uncertainty? I love how uh, it's put here. Abraham looked at himself and he saw that his body was good as dead. You know, (laughs) that's said several times in the Bible. I wonder how Abraham felt about that. It's like, hey, come on, you know, but he's like, I'm old and still childless. And God has said, I'm big daddy. And then he looks at Sarah and her womb has remained empty. But Abraham trusted God to keep his promises, believing that he is able, powerful, and willing, faithful. And it's important to say this. Faith is not a one-night stand. Trust is the relational lifeline between us and God. And it's for a lifetime. Abraham not not only had to trust God when he first heard his call on his life, he had to learn to live by faith in God's promises. He had to learn how to live his life in light of God's promises before he was able to see those promises come to full fruition. And the text says in verse 20 that he grew strong in faith. But don't miss this. He was justified from the moment he believed. Saving faith involves this transfer of trust. The end of one kind of trusting in myself and all my resources and the beginning of another and trusting what God has promised and what God has provided. And if you notice, the text never says, and then at that point, Abraham pulled himself together, became filled with self-love, calculated the odds and possibilities, made the best decision and went out into the world with confidence. No, it says Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Did he have doubts? Yeah, he did. Did he have struggles? For sure. Did he have like some major mess ups? You bet. But ultimately his trust was not in himself, but in what God promised. And that's what he hung on to. And it says in verse 20 that in doing so, he glorified God. He let God be God. And that shows up in the worst and hardest test of his life in Genesis 22. But never forget, he was justified from the moment he believed. Because it's not about the strength of your faith. It is about the strength of the one that you trust. You know what Paul does with this? He cashes all this business in in the story of Abraham that he's been working for us. In verses 23 to 25. What has become clear over time and what Paul is marveling at in this letter is that this counting or crediting righteousness involves the work of Jesus. This is the great disclosure. This is the provision that is the fulfillment of the promise. And this is Paul's summary. Jesus was delivered over to death to deal with our sins. And he was raised to life 
to secure our justification. Isn't that interesting? Tying justification to resurrection. Why would he do that? You know what Jesus' resurrection was? It wasn't just the proof that he was divine. It was the declaration that he's the vindicated one. That death has no claim on him. That he is wholly righteous. Right? That he's in the right. And guess what? When you believe in Jesus, the verdict that was passed over his life and his resurrection is given to you. It is yours in Christ. Do you see the power and the faithfulness of God? Faith is meant to feed on that. Now I want to close with this. The text Paul quoted from the story of uh, Abraham comes from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. But what's awesome about this is if you go back and read, the very next verses after this show Abraham doubting. Him saying to God, okay, 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 okay. I believe you, but how, how, how am I going to know? How can I keep trusting? And then we have this strange ceremony take place. Strange to us, uh, but familiar to Abraham who lived in the ancient Mesopotamian world. And it's a ceremony called cutting a covenant. And this is how it would work. When a great king would want to make covenant with a lesser king, a bond together, a personal union between them, they would take animals They would cut them in half. They would form uh, uh, lines so that there's a walkway in between. And then the lesser king would walk down between the pieces. And it was a way of saying something that was really important to people understanding this connection that was taking place. The great king's promising his protection and his favor and the lesser king's promising his loyalty and his obedience. But by walking between the pieces, the lesser king is saying, if I don't keep covenant, if I don't remain faithful, may I be torn to pieces like these animals. But something different happens in Genesis 15. God is the one who passes between the pieces. Abraham never does. As if God is saying to Abraham, if I don't keep my promises, may I be torn to pieces. And Abraham... If you don't keep your promises, may I be torn to pieces. God is assuming ultimate responsibility for the fulfillment of his promises. He's saying, I'm going to pay the price if I don't keep covenant. I will pay the price if you don't keep covenant, Abraham. Abraham, I will make it right. I will make you right, even if I have to be torn to pieces. And you know what Paul is recognizing in the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is exactly what God has done. This is the way God's promise to Abraham begins to bring blessing to the whole world. And we recite this every single Sunday at this church when we come to this table, the words of institution, what are they? Jesus saying, this is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. It's Jesus saying, I was torn to pieces to ensure that the promise would come to you. If that is what God is willing to do for you, can't you trust him? Now, I know some of you right now might be asking like, but okay, but like, what has God promised me? Help me, help me know what this is. Because there's so many things I've wanted him or expected him to do and like it didn't come through. Well, listen to this. This is what he's promised you. To never leave you nor forsake you. To forgive all your sins. To receive you as righteous in his sight. 
to work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And to one day wipe away every tear, every heartache, every ounce of loneliness, all addiction, each and every bit of shame forever. That's the full fruition of the promise that God made to Abram in Genesis 12. Blessing to all the families of the earth. But Abraham had to start trusting God now. He had to begin ordering his life in light of these promises, right? And so do you and I. But boy, we have so much more to go on than Abe did, didn't we? What is it that leads to a holy life? Is it threats? Is it punishments? Is it shame? Is it, is it high expectations? Or is it grace? See, somehow in our minds, we've gotten this idea that grace leads to laziness. Or grace leads to not taking responsibility for ourselves. But you know, it's exactly the opposite. When you make your performance your righteousness, you will always be thinking about you and how you're doing and not about others and how they're doing, which is the critical ingredient to love. And you'll be defensive and accusatory because you can't admit your own failures. They will unravel you. But justification by faith gives you a rest that allows you to stop thinking about yourself all the time and start moving towards others in love. See, it's not that obedience doesn't matter. It matters immensely. It's just obedience doesn't count for justification. Justification doesn't cancel effort. It reimagines it. It's not a way that we establish a righteousness with God. It's a way of responding in gratitude to a righteousness given to you. If you miss this, you will make zero progress in the Christian life. But if you get it, You will find your rest, your assurance, your hope, your value, your significance, your purpose in the love of God in Christ and in the work of Christ for you. And in doing so, you will begin to experience the blessing, the power of God unleashed in your life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and pray that it would find purchase in our hearts. Uh, Lord, we all know there's just so much resistance in us uh, because it's terrifying to let go of our self-salvation strategies. But God, by your spirit, would you help us to hear the good news and would you use it to change our lives? And would you set us free and help us be able to walk uh, and order our lives in light of your great promises? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.